We got a special treat for a Wednesday episode. Our State House and Politics Editor Rick Ruan is in the house. It's today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Rick, as well as Lisa Garvin and Laura Johnston. And Rick, you're up first. Does an Ohio Supreme Court ruling Tuesday end the practice of public officials retiring from their jobs and immediately being rehired? Or is this case too specific to be applied generally? So that remains to be seen entirely, but it does sound like this is actually a pretty narrow ruling. The Ohio Supreme Court was asked to intervene in the case of the Wycliffe fire chief who briefly retired in 2020 to begin collecting pension benefits before he was sworn back into his position the very next day. Uh, It's a fairly common occurrence in Ohio called retire, rehire, and it's similar but a little bit different from double dipping that people might be familiar with where a public employee retires from their job to take on another public gig and another public paycheck. So the fire union challenged the Wycliffe chief's rehire, saying that the vacancy after he retired had to be filled via a competitive exam. Wycliffe disagreed, saying there never was a true vacancy because the chief didn't actually plan to leave his job permanently. Lower courts agreed with Wycliffe, but the Ohio Supreme Court said this week that it did in fact create a vacancy that had to be filled through the competitive exam. So the court unanimously sent it back to the appeals court for further consideration. Uh, The police and fire pension fund folks told our reporter Jeremy Pelzer that there are a relatively low number of public safety members who use retire rehire, but this case centered on a pretty specific element of the state civil service law for filling vacancies, so it won't affect some of the more notable instances of a public official collecting a pension while they're still on the public payroll, uh, and that includes Attorney General Dave Yost. Well, elected officials, what they do is the day before their term ends, they retire, but they've been elected to start in January. And so they come back. Uh, A lot of times school districts will give, I think this might even be in the state law, but I'm not sure, will give teachers some number of years of retire, rehire, because there's not enough teachers. This case does seem pretty specific. And I was surprised, frankly, that the lower courts got this wrong. It seems like the Supreme Court got it right. They have a process. You have to fill a vacancy through that process. And when he retired, despite his intentions, it creates a vacancy, right? Yeah, that's that's what the court ruled. And uh, that's really what was at the center of the argument. What, was this a vacancy or was this not a vacancy? And uh, if he's no longer on the payroll, whether it's for you know six hours or um, six weeks, he they're saying that he created a vacancy by leaving the job to collect the, the pension benefits. There is a public scorn for people who retire and come back, which I'm not quite sure I understand because they're eligible to retire. They've done their time. The rules allow them to get a pension. But if they have this expertise that an employer wants or somebody wants, why wouldn't you allow them to come back? Otherwise, they'll go get a job somewhere else. But it is something, Laura, you know this. Every time this comes up, people get really angry about it. I mean, I understand the anger because it it's something that regular people can't do. And I think that's where the the recoil comes in that like I you know, my taxpayer money pays for your salary, but hey, go ahead, retire, collect this pension, which is a lot better than my retirement's ever gonna be, based on your last five years of service, and then keep going back and doing the same job. I, I get the the outrage there. I understand that it's totally legal. 
but we we talked. I think when Jerry first died a couple weeks ago, we talked about how he refused to do that because he thought it was bad. Although it cost them a fortune. Look, what you're questioning there is the, the public pension system. The public pension system is great. It's way better than what the private sector gets. I'm not sure that's an argument to take it away. It's probably an argument that the private sector ought to have a better pension system. <laughs> yes, yeah, all for that. But I, I just, it's one where they can retire. So, so that's what you have. Those are the facts. This fire chief was able to retire. He just didn't check the rules before he did. And now he's out of a job. Interesting. And you wonder movie. how he would do on that test, right? If he had to take the competitive <laughs> test, would he, would he win out? Or maybe he gets hired in another fire department. Who knows? I mean, somebody, apparently he wants to keep working. Somebody else will take advantage of his services. Interesting well, case. We need more safety services, people. And I, I kind of tip the hat to the Supreme Court for getting it right. I hope they bring the same good sense and logic when they finally decide <laughs> whether we get all our income taxes we paid to cities that we weren't working in in 2020, whether we get those back. That thing should come one of these years. It's three years. I thought you were going to say in redistricting decisions. <laughs> well, no, I expect nothing from nothing good from that, but we'll see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I can't remember this happening before, and maybe it speaks to a growing youth voter activism in Cleveland, but what was the reason people are challenging some well-known candidates to keep them off the November ballot for Cleveland Municipal Judge? Lisa? It all revolves around the number of signatures that are needed to get on the ballot in Cleveland. So Cleveland activists Jeffrey Mixon and Mariah Crenshaw are protesting several candidates for a municipal court judge and the clerk of court's job. They sought hearings with the County Board of Elections on whether those candidates got enough signatures to qualify for the November ballot. Now, the Cleveland City Charter says 3,000 signatures are needed. The Board of Elections denied hearings for several Several candidates, including former Cleveland Councilman Jeff Johnson and other uh, municipal court judge uh, candidates, John Russo, Sidney Saffold, Heather McCullough, and Jocelyn Conwell. And also current County Councilman Martin Sweeney, who was want, wants to run for the clerk of court's job. So Mixon, he also protest, protested the candidacy of Sheila Turner McCall. She's running for re-election as a judge. And they say that the candidates, you know, of the elections fall under state law. That's what the candidates say. They say under state law, only 50 signatures are needed. And McCullough said, nobody turned in 3,000 names. They thought that the 50 signatures was right. And apparently, uh, you know, they were agreed with. Yeah. If, if, if you're running in the city of Cleveland, you need 50 signatures. If you're running for the state position, you need the thousands. These are pretty clearly, though, city positions. Common police judges are considered more state positions, but this is, this is not, I, what, what, look, I'm struck by two things. One, that they felt so fervently about these people into it with everybody, just these people to try and keep them off the ballot. It, it almost shows a dissatisfaction with these longtime veteran office holders that, that they want new blood. Uh, it was interesting that after this all happened and the candidates prevailed, Marty Sweeney withdrew mm -hmm. from his his uh, candidacy. And it was the last day he could. 
Well, and, you know, uh, McCullough, the one who said nobody turned in 3,000 names, she says this was a targeted protest of particular candidates, and the Board of Elections apparently agreed. Um, Crenshaw herself, she wants the Ohio Supreme Court to make a decision on whether or not to leave these candidates on the ballot. Yeah, I just don't see them winning this one. It seems pretty clear what the the law says. Uh, uh, I do wonder whether this whole fight is what turned Marty Sweeney away from running, although he claims not. Right. He said that there's too much important work to be doing to be done in county council and that, you know, it's a key time to be there. So I'm not sure what he was thinking deciding to run for clerk of courts anyway. Maybe he just decided he couldn't win against Earl Turner. You do have to look at, though, this kind of movement, this progressive activist movement in Cleveland. It's what helped Justin Bibb get into office. It created that amendment for civilian review of police. You wonder how powerful this group can get. They lost this one, but but they're not going away. This is a continuation of what we saw over the last couple of years. They also have on the ballot now this citizen participatory budgeting that will be on the ballot you wonder where they're going. It's a it's a very interesting moment in Cleveland history. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Sunday was one world day at the Cleveland Cultural Gardens, and the Russian Garden folks used the occasion to make a strong statement about what is happening in Ukraine. Laura, what was it? And that is that the Russian Cultural Garden stands with Ukraine. They don't support Putin or his attack on Ukraine. So at One World Day Sunday, the Russian Cultural Garden didn't host any activities. They marched in the parade of flags under an anti-war flag of the immigrants from Russia. It's white, blue, white instead of red, blue, white. They removed their flag from the garden last year when Russia attacked. And then they put out this full page ad indicating unbridled support for Ukraine And there's a flag that features Pushkin with the wise cat. It's artwork that shows the Russian poet Alexander Pushkin carrying a black cat under one arm. And in the background is the famous entrance gate to the summer garden of St. Petersburg. And it says, Russian cultural garden, we stand with Ukraine. So it's what they're basically saying is we are not Russia. We are immigrants from Russia who live in Cleveland and we don't believe what they're doing is correct. is right or just. We do have a significant Russian population on the east side of Cleveland. I don't know if there's still a Russian language newspaper, if it's just a website now. And you do wonder if this is the general feeling of the Russian immigrants that have come to Cleveland, that they're looking at what Vladimir Putin is doing uh, as as anti-Russian in the end, and that they largely stand with Ukraine. I mean, let's face it, the rest of the world sees what Putin is doing and knows that he's you know, going in the steps of the 30s where he's trying to dominate Europe. Uh, it's interesting that they made such a strong statement at One World Day in support. And they had a Facebook post, too, that said, we don't want to be associated in any way with these criminals talking about Putin and his clique. So that's really strong. Honestly, the way Putin is, I'd be, I'd be a little scared, even if I lived in the United States, of being that outspoken against Putin. But obviously, we... I mean, this is, it's brave of them. And there's a lot of Eastern European countries in the garden that have really fraught relationships with Russia. And that's why a lot of immigrants might have come to Cleveland in the first place. So really interesting playing out. But it's nice that the the cultural gardens are so supportive of each other. Yeah, courageous move. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
We saved this one for Rick, knowing he'd be here today. Let's talk about the challenge before the Ohio Supreme Court to the ballot language approved for the abortion amendment voters will consider in November. Rick, what's it about? So the writing was on the wall with this one last week as soon as the Ohio ballot board took their party line vote to approve the language that voters would see on the abortion amendment in November. Uh, The backers of the amendment filed their lawsuit on Monday saying the board's language includes blatant inaccuracies. Some of the problems they identified might be a little more subtle to the average uh, reader or listener. So for instance, the ballot language refers to an unborn child rather than a fetus. And while the amendment language the backers circulated refers to a pregnant patient, the ballot language uses the term pregnant woman. And those could be seen as uh, kind of subtle nods in favor of the campaign against the amendment. Unborn child, for instance, is a pretty common term in the anti-abortion group uh, communications. So the ballot language approved by Republicans also says the amendment would allow people the right, and this is a quote, to one's own reproductive medical treatment. Backers suggest that is an attempt to put wind in the sails of the anti-abortion movement's argument that the amendment's going to allow children to get sex changes without their parents' consent or knowledge. Uh, That's a claim that legal experts have largely rejected, but it's been the central message of the campaign against the amendment for months already. Uh, Backers of the amendment want the court to set aside the ballot board's language and instead use the full text of the amendment on ballots in November. Now we just get to wait and see if the Republican controlled court will even accept the case. Yeah, the idea of just running the amendment seems like that makes the most sense rather than having either side interpret it. Because if you run the full text, it's up to the voter to interpret it. And that's the way things should work. I don't see them doing that. I mean, if when when the language for issue one was challenged, if you read those rulings, the Supreme Court was pretty clear that they're not in the business of, of dictating language and that they really fought back against changes there, except for the thing that was factually incorrect. Uh, but it would seem like the best thing to do is to trust the voter and let them see the whole thing. Sometimes that's not really practical. I mean, you know, you can run into amendments that are pages and pages and pages long. Think about the the redistricting uh, amendment that Maureen O'Connor is circulating. That that thing I think is you know uh, pushing thirty pages. Uh, but for <laughs> this one in particular, uh, the the length is not all that different from from the ballot language that the ballot board proposed. Yeah, I I, I hope we end up there because nothing anything else will not be satisfactory to anybody. Uh, I I would not make this argument for the marijuana statute that's on the ballot because I did read through that and that would take up pages and pages and pages also. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We finally know what the 10 drugs are that Medicare will work to negotiate lower prices on per a statement from President Joe Biden. Lisa, what are they and what are they used for? Yeah, these first 10 drugs that are subject to Medicare price negotiations are the most common and sometimes the most expensive drugs for seniors on Medicare Part D. This was made legal by the Inflation Reduction Act. So most of these 10 drugs, and you're familiar with them, I can sing the jingles on some of the commercials of these, <laughs> even though I don't take them. But most of them cost anywhere from about three to $5,000 a year out of pocket So for, for some, but there are some that are really pricey. So so Eliquis to treat uh, blood clots, 
155,000 people in Ohio are on Eliquis. Jardiance, which treats diabetes and heart failure, 47,000 Ohioans take that. Xarelto, which treats blood clots, coronary, and peripheral artery disease, 1.3 million people are on Xarelto nationwide, 57,000 here in Ohio. Genuvia, a diabetes drug, 39,000 Ohioans on that. Farsiga, which uh, treats diabetes, heart failure, and chronic kidney disease, and Tresto, another heart failure drug, Enbril. Now, this is a pricey one. This one treats rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis. About 1,000 Ohioans are on Enbril. The out-of-pocket cost is over $58,000 a year. Wow. Another pricey one, Stellara, which also treats psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis, but also Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Again, about 1,000 Ohioans on Stellara. That cost $119,000, almost $120,000 a year. Um, other drugs, Imbruvica treats blood cancers, uh, a Novolog, Flexpen, Penfill, uh, you know, all these uh, diabetes, you know, injections, about 33,000 Ohioans on that, and that costs about $3,300 a year. So negotiations for these drugs begins next year, but prices won't take effect until 2026. It's a good move, though. Those prices are just savaging people who were in need of it for their health. So it's good to see. A lot appears to have gone into picking the 10 that they're starting with. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what they can get those prices down to and how willing the pharmaceutical companies will be to negotiate in good faith. Well, and they're not willing. They're already coming out against this. So it'll be a big fight ahead. Well, it'll be interesting to see. And we're one of the, if not the only nation that doesn't negotiate prices on drugs. Yeah, it's about time. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Fugitive safe surrender was a novel idea when it first started right here in Cleveland. What is Sherrod Brown doing to make sure it continues on a grand scale, Laura? He wants to reauthorize the national program. So it started in Cleveland in 2005. It was a huge success from the very beginning when it basically transformed Mount Sinai Church in Cleveland into a makeshift courthouse. 842 people voluntarily surrendered. They met with public defenders. They had hearings. Some people went to jail. Some had charges dropped. Some had later court dates. But they got the people who were wanted off the streets, turning themselves in safely. They did it again. I mean, they did it annually, I believe. In 2011, they had a four-day event that got 40, sorry, 7,400 people to voluntarily surrender, which that's kind of mind-blowing. But it, it hasn't happened nationally since about that time. And so Brown is saying, we really need need this. And I got to th- say, when we keep talking about violence in cities, that this seems like a really good time to think about it again. And if, if it works, why not do it? Yeah, I can't believe we're coming up on 20 years since it first started, because it does seem like it was much more recent. But it, but the beauty of it was, is it gave people the the peace of mind of knowing when I go in, it's not going to be SWAT teams taking me down. They set it up so it was a very trusting kind of thing. The community got together to do this. Mm-hmm. It was a great idea from the Marshal Service in Cleveland, and it did spread. I'm, I'm surprised that it's kind of fallen into abeyance. Did that have something to do with the pandemic? No, it was actually 2011. That's when Brown was trying to keep the mar- talk the marshals out of canceling it nationally. So, I mean, it went big and then it 
it disappeared. It went to eight cities in 2006. And then nationally, it was U.S. Representative Stephanie Tubbs-Jones and Mike DeWine, who was a senator at the time. They tra- they put it nationally as part of the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act in 2006. So I'm not sure why they curtailed it nationally. But I mean, I, I feel like it's a kind of a no-brainer. Well, it was safe. I mean, that was the thing. I mean, when they're out looking for fugitives, there's always the danger, right? You knock on the door and it's dangerous for the officers. It's There's danger for the people being yeah. arrested. This had the community welfare and people trusted it and it worked really, really well. I'm surprised. And, and having the churches right. take part in it, then then you know that there will be, I mean, that signals the community support as well as some kind of you know, forgiveness, I guess. Well, it helps people get on with their lives. Whatever the process is, Mm -hmm. they don't get clear until they started. And this gets them back into the system toward an end. It it was a absolute positive. Uh, They really should bring it back. Good for Sherrod Brown. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A state lawmaker is in trouble again. Who is the Northeast Ohio representative and what is he accused of now, Rick? So state rep uh, Bob Young, uh, a Republican from the city of Green, is accused of violating a protection order. So listeners might remember Young from his first arrest in July. He was charged with two counts of domestic violence after authorities said he struck a woman's face. All the charges are first degree misdemeanors. Uh, Back in July, Young was accused of um, using an open hand uh, when when he struck that woman in the face, throwing a cell phone in a pool to stop her from calling 911, uh, lowering his shoulder to charge a man and causing one of the victims to sustain cuts from broken glass. So that is the the backdrop for what happened most recently here. Uh, The latest case uh, stems from that incident. Uh, Summit County sheriffs say that Young left voicemails on the landline of a protected party on Saturday, and then he was arrested on Monday night. Uh, He pleaded not guilty in the earlier case, and he's supposed to be in court for that case on Thursday. Uh, Ohio House Speaker Jason Stevens has called for Young's resignation, but he said he won't be vacating his seat. Um, That was several months ago. Uh, We got another statement this morning from uh, a few Democrats in Northeast Ohio also calling for for Young to uh, vacate his seat. It's going to be harder for him to to stick around when you violate the protective order. He can argue that he had a lapse in his initial incident, that it was a a moment of, of passion or something like that. But when you are violating the protective order, you you don't have a whole lot that you can claim. It's almost like a, a form of mental health issue here when somebody is so consumed that they can't control themselves. This is, this is serious stuff. And we see it all over all over town. I was talking to our criminal justice editor, uh, John Canigle yesterday. His team had done some stories uh, about a month ago about a horrible, horrible case in which a boyfriend just pretty much tortured his girlfriend. And he, and they have another one that almost borders on it. And you're, it's just this constant kind of, of abuse issue, but you can't be an elected official if you're, you're convicted of abusing somebody. You are listening to Today in Ohio. The concept of wage theft is a little hard for some people to wrap their heads around. Now, for people who feel like they are victims, help is at hand. Lisa, what is wage theft and what aid is being offered to the victims? 
A lot of people don't even know that they're victims of wage theft, and that's why this group is trying to let people know what their rights are, what wage theft is, and what they can do about it. It's the Northeast Ohio Worker Center. It's made up of trained volunteers. They offer free wage theft clinics. One is coming up later in September. And so people can get together, share their experiences with each other, learn more about it, and how to recover any lost wages they may be due. The Ohio Department of Commerce last year took 1,253 wage complaints. Most of them were about minimum wages. 200 cases were found out of that where the employer did owe money and they owed over $1.3 million overall. That amount was $2.5 million that was in recovered wages in 2021 and $1.1 million in 2020. Um, a liaison with the Northeast Ohio Workers and Policy Matters Ohio, Ali Smith, says workers often don't know what's happening or they they don't report it. She said the most common things are people who give their two weeks notice, they work that two weeks, leave the job, and don't get their final paycheck, or they work a 50-plus hour week at an hourly rate instead of getting time and a half for all the hours over 40 hours. Um, there are no overtime pay policies that no overtime pay policies are mostly illegal in most cases. She also says that taxes withheld from these paychecks don't go to the government entities they are supposed to. I would love to know who the companies are. If this is as prevalent as it sounds, is this large employers? Is it mostly mom and mom and pop. So so how is this group going to help? How how are they going to get people their money back? So what they do is they they have these clinics. The the next one is September 30th at 7901 Central Avenue at Deep Roots Gallery. These clinics are free to attend. No appointment is needed. Everything they talk about is confidential. They don't really need any documentation, but if you have pay stubs or schedules or anything else, you can bring them in and that will be helpful. They also have online, uh, you know, where you can file a claim online. Wow. Okay. Interesting story. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Another story of interest. If you are older or have older friends or relatives, what breakthrough in treating strokes is the Cleveland Clinic involved in, Laura? This is called deep brain stimulation. So it uses surgically implanted electrodes to deliver electrical stimulation to specific areas of the brain. And it's been used in a lot of different diseases, I guess. It has some track record in the treatment of Tourette's syndrome, Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease, chronic pain, epilepsy, but it hadn't been used in stroke before. And so this research, it had 12 patients in it, and the majority of them were helped by this. Even years after you initially have a stroke, you can combine deep brain stimulation and physical therapy and dramatically improve quality of life and the ability to function independently. I remember not long after I arrived in Cleveland, the the introduction of TPA for stroke treatment came out. And this was something that the quicker you administered it, the better the odds were there would be no long lasting uh, ramifications of a stroke. It was really revolutionary because before then, if you had a stroke, you had a long period of coming back, but it was always based on timing. You had to get it mm -hmm. fast. This is very different that if it, you can use this years later to undo the damage, that's as revolutionary as the TPA treatment was. Right. And what it is, is they have a surgery, it's surgery. They implant electrodes into a part of the brain called the dentate nucleus. That's what regulates the fine control of voluntary movements, cognitive language, and sensory functions. 
you can tell like I am not an expert at this, but Gretchen Kudakroen does a really good job of explaining it. But that's what stimulates the brain. But you have to combine it with the physical therapy in order to basically teach your brain to do these things again. But it's promising and it's taking this commercial with Inspire DBS Therapy, which is a Cleveland Clinic portfolio company. There's a lot of people that experience stroke in the United States, 800,000 people a year, which means there's 7 million stroke survivors who live in the U.S. About half of them have disabilities is severe enough to require assistance with daily activities. So there's a huge market and um, the chance of stroke doubles every 10 years after age 55. Is this a Cleveland Clinic exclusive or were they working with others on this? As far as I know, this was just an exclusive. I mean, we're only talking about 12 patients, so it's not a huge study. Interesting. Okay. Check out Gretchen's Gretchen's story. It's on cleveland.com. That's it for the Wednesday episode of Today in Ohio. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, everybody who listens. We'll be back Thursday. Thursday.